This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Sales EQ, Objections and Inked, and I'm here to help you fill up your pipeline, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome back to the Sales Gravy Podcast. On this episode, we're talking about how to create a sales accountability culture with expert Christy Jones. And this is a pretty important subject because if you don't have a culture of accountability, you have the wild, wild west, inconsistent results, and a pretty miserable experience. Before we get started, though, I've got a great new way for you to connect directly with me. You can just send me a text message. My phone number is one 706 397-4599. That's 1-706-397-4599. You can text me to just say hello, to ask a question, or even to give me ideas for future podcast episodes. And all you got to do is send a text at 706-397-4599. That's 706-397-4599. Now, here's my conversation with Christy Jones about how to create a sales accountability culture. Christy Jones is a sales trainer, sales expert, and she loves to talk about accountability within your sales culture. Christy, welcome to the Sales Gravy Podcast. Jeb, thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about you, because I don't know you that well, and a lot of our listeners might not know, know you that well either. So I'm, I'm curious to learn more about you, your practice, what you do, and, and why you have uh, such a passion for, uh, for, for creating an accountability culture. Absolutely. Um, I actually started in uh, SaaS sales leadership back in 2000. And uh, as I progressed through my career, I started to work for some VC-backed companies and I got the VC-backed startup bug. And so accountability is so critical when you're dealing with people who have given you money, um, who are expecting a return on the investment. So early stage startups and then fast growing startups are all about sense of urgency and results. And it started to become really clear um, as I was working as a VP of sales in those environments that we really needed to have a sales accountability culture and we needed to create one and then we needed to maintain one. About 2016, I left the W2 world and started my own sales consultancy. So I stayed in the same swim lane, if you will. So I'm passionate about helping early stage tech startups, normally around the series A time, build and scale their sales teams, formalize process. But Jeb, I spend a ton of time doing executive coaching, um, I say sort of on the sly, talking about accountability culture. I'm still walking into company and after company and talking to them about accountability culture after really not seeing it. So everything from not having firm quotas to not dealing with what I call accountability dodgers. Got it. And the fact that you started in 2000 in SaaS leadership, I mean, you think about it, that was like the, 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 those were the wild west days of, of moving software to the cloud. I, I'm, I'm really curious what it was like back then, you know, in, in the, you know, in the SaaS world compared to today where you've got division of sales labor and, you know, all the data and metrics around it and all these cool tools that you can use. I mean, back then you didn't really have a whole lot of anything. No, in fact, back then we didn't call it SaaS. <laughs> we called it. <laughs> We called it subscription. We have a subscription model. Um, it was very interesting. The company I was working for back in 2000, I actually ended up spending 10 years at that organization, helping them grow from 1 million to eight, um, was an e-learning company. So we had a learning management system. We sold e-learning content. So not only were we trying to convince people that the cloud was safe, because back then the IT uh, department was not crazy about hearing the word cloud. We also had to convince them that e-learning was equally... Um, as effective as classroom training. So it really was, we spent a lot of time trying to convince people that the cloud was a safe place for their employees to go and take training. So it really was a little bit of the wild west. There weren't metrics. Um, We did have a CRM system, I'm I'm proud to say, but we didn't have any of the enablement tools. Um, I did start uh, at that company, what I'll call a BDR program, but um, we called it just biz dev back then. And it wasn't formalized. And as you know, there was no automation. And so I did hire though more junior reps to help set appointments for my senior staff. So I had kind of a three 
tier model. So BDR, where you helped a senior set appointments, the middle tier, so junior AE, where you had to fish for yourself. So you got nothing thrown your way. You had to go and, and hook them yourself. And then the senior AEs who had proven that they could hit the quota consistently got, got the BDR assistant. So we started with that. In fact, you know, back then we were also doing, initially when I went to the company, they were doing hunting and gathering. So the account executives were not only hunting for net new business, but also renewing that business. And it became clear really quickly that we needed to separate those two responsibilities because there were a lot of what I call howdy duty calls to clients being made. And so um, I actually, within the first probably 18 months of getting there, divided that team out. And that was, again, as you can imagine, that was a big feat from a, just a morale standpoint and really trying to figure out who true, who true hunters were, but we were never going to get above the water level, right? So the bucket kept emptying out and staying at the same level because we didn't have anybody dedicated to what we now call getting new logos, right? Yeah. I, the, you know, the division of, of sales labor is an interesting thing. I was for a really long time, I just was not for the practice because what I believe that it did is it created a group of salespeople that were completely entitled. And since since then, I've changed my my view on that. I, we work with a number of startup SaaS companies as well in my training group, and we you can see in some places where it really works, but you can also see some places where it doesn't work. And a great example of that is I was working, we were working with a, a cloud-based company, and they had a division down in Australia that was failing miserably. So um, I went there, sat down with the team, and it was like it was truly like a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross scene. <laughs> they had sent me from Boston to go down there and share the bad news that they were all going to lose their jobs if they didn't start like prospecting, building pipe. Mm-hmm. And they sold a pretty complex prod- product into into engineering groups. So it wasn't like it wasn't one of these SaaS companies where you know it's a twenty dollar a month type deal. It was it was complex software, and I got down there, sat down with them, and the very first thing that the leader said to me was, well, you know, my guys, they're too, these are too expensive to have them, like, doing cold calls and stuff. And, mm. the, and of course, all the salespeople looked at me and said, yeah, you know, we're, we don't, we got a, we've got an SDR. <laughs> yeah. They had one SDR. The SDR was a 23-year-old right out of college kid. Yep. They're selling a complex product. He's calling engineers. Okay, so engineering groups. And they have nothing in the pipe. This the country is failing. So the country manager, also the sales manager, country is failing. And I'm just looking at them, and I'm like, "Here's the deal, guys. If you don't prospect, you're gonna fail. If you don't go out and find some 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 leads, you're gonna fail, and you're all gonna lose your jobs. And these are good jobs because you are all making well over six figures in these roles, and right. they're paying that to you as a salary. So here's right. the deal: you've got to get over yourself." and pick up the phone and call. That SDR over there, that's gravy. If that person produces something for you, that's a great deal. But there is no way that one kid who's 23 years old can feed 10 account managers. No possible way. No way. So it, it took, I mean, we I got their attention, but it was begrudging. But their leader, the leader itself, that leader was not creating accountability. And I had to fly from the U.S. to Australia to sit down and tell these people the bad news. Now, I get hired. I'm sure you probably do it a lot. I'm hired a lot to tell sales teams bad news. Yeah. I'm hired a lot to be the, you know, the heavy. I come in and I'm the one that says, look, you got to fix this problem. Or, you know, if we're on a on a business development floor, uh, you know, usually out in the West Coast, you know, we're we're dealing with a lot of leaders who are basically just getting like you sold a lot today, so now you're the you're you're leading the BDR team, the business development team, and you don't really know what to do. So, and then all the leaders are in meetings all day long. They spend their days going from room to room to room trying to reserve a conference room because they have these open, <laughs> you know, these open floors. And you know, and a lot of the accountability work we do is like is like really going to to top the leadership on these companies. That, That's right. We, one company, you know, they got five hundred million dollars from VCs, yep. and they're and their business development floor is like the Lord of the flies. Yep. And you're like, listen, guys, I mean, you, you got to be good stewards with the money. And so the leadership group, how can you, how can you run a sales team if your sales leaders are sitting in meetings all day long and they think that's their job? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I throw all that out to you because, and I want to come back to Lord of the Flies because I've done a couple of, of big consulting uh, projects with, with Lord of the Flies teams where 
you know, we've come in, done a little bit of work, and basically we've had to temporarily take over the sales team mm -hmm. because it was a disaster because they had more money than they had brains at some point. So I'm curious about your, you know, your take on, on the, the vision of sales labor and how that can be an accelerator and I and that's where my belief system is it can be accelerator but can it can it can also in some ways just disable we always talk about enablement but it disables mm -hmm. the sales team because you create this entitlement across the whole organization versus this accountability drive to our job is to get logos our job is to generate revenue our job is MRR every single month that's what we do and nobody gets to sit that out so I'm curious what you think about that yeah, I think in the SaaS world where where I live and breathe, I really do believe in the division of labor. Um, on the flip side of that, ironically enough, um, my brother is a top salesperson at a staffing company, and he just gets a quota every year, and he they don't care how he hits it, right? I mean, he's obviously um, you know comped on spread, but you know it's so fascinating to me that they just give him a number, and I said, and they just don't care if you get that from existing clients or whether you go get new clients, and he says they don't. And it's just so fast. It just like it kind of just I, you know we've been having this conversation. He's been working for that company for 20 years. So we have this conversation regularly, and we just had it again two days ago. Um, as I called him and said, "Do you have your quota for next year yet?" He goes, "It's not going to change," and he says, "It's the same thing every year because I'm at a certain tier." So, but I do believe you know I did divide that team up back in the early 2000s. Um, the last uh, position I had actually was for Gainsight. So you can imagine um, I am a customer success advocate. Um, and evangelist. So I built Gainsight's first SDR team uh, like well, six or so years ago, I guess, before I started my own business. So I do believe that particularly because Jeb, the area that I'm working in, you know, is so new. So they, some of my clients haven't hit their first million yet. You know, some of them are at 3 million, but most of them have not even hit their first 10 million. So I do believe that in those early stages and those type of companies, we have to divide that labor out it's so critical. I mean, those VCs want their money back and then some. And so, you know, it's so much easier to pick up the phone and call an existing client for your howdy doody check-in, how's it going call, than it is to pick up the phone and call somebody where you have to spell. I remember when we first built the Gainsight um, SDR team, they had us in this sardine room. I call it the sardine can room. We were all crammed in there because we were moving to a new building, but we hadn't done it yet. And so I'm sitting at the head of the table, so to speak, with at uh, that time, I guess, eight uh, BDRs. And all I heard all day long was Gainsight, G-A-I-N-S-I-G-H-T, Gainsight. And that's hard, right? Like, I mean, we made, we made light of it, but that's what you're doing sometimes when you're cold calling. You're spelling the name of your company. I mean, we were trying to, again, back then, explain what customer success even was. You know, here we go again, trying to convince people about something they'd never heard of. So for me, particularly in the world that I live, I think that division of power is critical because we have to get new logos, new customers, and in you know reduce risk. Well, I definitely think that the vision of labor with customer success, we'll call it account management, customer success, customer service, and sales is critical. And I'm a hyper growth company, so we're we're a company that is hurtling towards twenty five million dollars in sales. We're growing at forty percent a year. It's uh, it's almost unnerving sometimes because you wake up and every day is just chaos. I mean, I was at the office last night till ten o'clock because we are bringing us so much new business that it's hard for us to keep up with it all and continue to deliver a great customer experience. And we've had to split that, you know, that labor in our organization because the, my hunters will, the, and the problem is, it's not so much that the account management takes them away from hunting. It's two problems. One account management is easier than hunting or customer right. success is easier than hunting. So I'll right. go do, like you say, a howdy duty call. I really like that. I may steal that from you, but you know, how are you doing today? Uh, right. but, but at the same time, my, my best hunters are terrible at customer success. Mm -hmm. they, they like to kill it, bring it in and go out and get something else. And they love it. Now, I don't have I don't have a business development versus account executive team. I've if, at least in my business and what we do, we're in e-learning and training and all and we're you know, we're all virtual. So uh, but I found that when I do that, again, my account executives have a tendency to sit back and wait versus creating this perpetual hunger that I got to have something, I got to have something, I got to have something. Yep. And crazy as it sounds, I don't even have quotas. I have no quotas whatsoever. So I, I did, no goals on anybody. And, and that's been, that's been a pretty easy thing to do. I, you know, I've got, we've got monetary incentives for that, but I definitely, you know, and I'm, and I don't, I don't begrudge. I think if you're trying to get, if you're trying to accelerate 
your run and you know you're trying to move really fast but you know the sales teams that we work with especially in the SaaS world that are really crushing it the place that we always go first is that BDR team because if we can generate more leads going into the account executive team then the company's going to move faster and it, it I think it I think it, it you can create explosive growth uh, but I definitely you know the, the success versus sales you've got to separate but that brings me to something else from an accountability standpoint I, I'm like you, I'm a business. I, I run my, my entire business is run on the cloud mm-hmm. it, and we love it. Cause as a, as a, you know, as a small entrepreneurial business, we can move fast, but, but I gotta tell you, I'm finding that the accountability in the customer success realm of SaaS is really, really bad. Like customer success actually sucks <laughs> because there's, we, for example, we, you know, we signed up for a, uh, uh, some software to run part of our HR function mm-hmm. and the sales process was great. We signed up, we, you know, we got the subscription, pretty expensive stuff. And, and then my, my HR team got busy and my finance team got busy and like a lot of SaaS products, they just didn't use it. They, they were all excited about it, but then when oh. they had to actually use it, you know, they didn't. So right. Uh, so about six months in, we're running a report. I'm, I'm like, I got this line on my p I'm like, why are we paying for that? Are we using this? Well, we haven't set it up yet. And I just asked a simple question. Has anybody from the company called you to remind you that you need to get set up? And they went, no. And I'm like, turn the damn subscription off. We're not doing this right. anymore. Right. And I, and I was, and, and, and as a, you know, as a sales trainer, like as a sales trainer and as a business consultant, I'm a, it was appalling to me. I was like, crap, this is amazing that no one in the company noticed that my company had never spun up their product. We were just paying for the subscription. So here's a, so that's super interesting. Um, coming from the customer success industry, here's what I would tell you. Um, first off, churn starts in the first 30 days. So if you have not successfully implemented your client in the first 30 days, unless your implementation takes 90 or whatever, but I say churn starts at 30 days. If you've had a bad onboarding implementation experience, you are 60 to 70% more likely to churn out at the end of your contract than ever before. So when we comp CSMs, customer success managers, when we comp them, that is one of the main compensation um, drivers for them from an accountability standpoint. Not only have they been onboarded, but are they, to your point, actually using it? So part of the customer health score is activity, but more importantly, really is just what you said. Like, you know, we're, we're big on QBRs, right? Quarterly business reviews mm-hmm. and executive business reviews. But the bottom line is that's just table stakes, just getting people to log in, right? So, but you have to, you have to hold people accountable to that. So why, you know, we, we called it um, in Gainsight, every Monday we had what we called code red meetings and code red were customers that were at risk. And again, 70 to 80% of customers who were in the code red category were in, never got off the ground, were implementation mm-hmm. failures. You're exactly right. We, I, you know, I used to run a, an online job board, but it was a subscription-based job board. And it was a big part of sales gravy for a long time. And it was exactly the same thing. We, did, we used a red, yellow, green uh, tracker. And in the red were all of our brand new customers that either weren't using it, hadn't put a job posting up, whatever. And that was a big part of our world was getting them to use it. If we could keep them on for 60 days, we keep them on for a year. That's right. But that was, uh, it, it was, it was definitely an issue. And I'm glad to hear you say that because that, I mean, that is an accountability issue because there should be somebody who recognizes that, you know, it's the, you know, it's a, it's a little bit deeper and more complex software, but you know, land, expand, retain, yeah. you know, land, expand and integrate, right? So you need to get it integrated into their system and integrated into their workflow. So unwinding you is very, very difficult. And if you don't get that integration, that workflow integration, it's going to be hard for you to get the renewals down the road. So I think that's a, I think it's a big deal. And especially, you know, you're working with these really early stage startups. This is where right. for me, you know, I, and I, again, I came from a world where we made money and you come from a world where you get subscribers. So it's a completely different area. So I've right. always been, if you're not making a profit, you're not a business. And that's just how right. I feel about things. So, you know, I'm, I, you know, when you get big and you can afford, you got enough coming in the back end, you can afford to have all this division of labor at the uh, at the sales level. You probably should, but I wonder, you know, in early stage startups, when you've got just a handful of salespeople, are, is it is it better to have that group of salespeople 
have a full desk like your brother does. So, you know, my job is to go out and find it and my job is to kill it. I would always I would always split customer success. Never 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 would I give a hunter you know access to keep my customers because they won't. Right. Uh, but I wonder does it make sense for you to have a you know a full desk where they're doing both prospecting and and selling until you're able to then find the, the salespeople that really know how to bring deals home and 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 have those people successful and then bring in BDRs behind them? Or do you immediately come in and go out and hire a bunch of bodies to be BDRs, hire a bunch of people to be account executives and just throw money at it until you figure out how it works? Yeah, good question. If they're super early stage, so I mean, um, I say just uh, I say I do zero and I do broken. So if I'm coming into zero, where literally they've just gotten funding and the founder's been playing sales rep, um, under that circumstance, we normally will hire what I'll call a junior AE who has to hunt for themselves. So there's no BDR or SDR given to them. Because just what you said, so founders selling, founders who are selling their own baby, if you will, are very different than bringing somebody else in who didn't build it, probably wasn't the developer or part of the engineering team or any of that. So and a lot of the founders I work with were in that space, right? They never came from a sales or marketing background. They came from, you know, they had a great idea and they had coding experience and a development experience and they could build it. So when I'm bringing in someone for the very first time, the first one or two sales reps, I don't give them help for that very reason, because I need smart people who have already done this in other places to come in and help build out, you know, messaging, strategy, process, you know, and be part of that team. I say, please don't check your brain at the door when you walk through in the morning because <laughs> I really need that help. Yep. Um, if I've got more advanced, if I've got two or three people then, and we've been doing this and we're starting to hit the ground and we've got, we're putting together playbooks, you know, we're starting, it's not just tribal knowledge anymore. We're starting to put things on paper. At that point, I bring in um, BDRs. Um, and so that time we've, we've sort of baked it out and, and we're still, you know, I still say it's never, it's never fully baked it for a while. Um, because there's always so much more roadmap for product. You know, product takes a while to develop. And so there's always so much more product and things are going to be ebbing and flowing. But I agree with you. And even after I bring in BDRs, I require AEs to pull like pull their own weight and build a third of their own funnel. Oh I don't think AEs should ever stop prospecting. Not to mention the fact that statistically, data shows that if you if you source your own deal as an AE, it closes faster, the close rate's better, the sales cycle's shorter. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. So if I go back to my days of what we would call, you know, carrying a briefcase, which nobody does anymore, it's a, it's a laptop. But, uh, but if I go back then, and, you know, we always act, act like division of labor is new, but it really isn't. I had two SDRs who worked for me. So I was an account executive. I sold relatively big deals. It wasn't software and it wasn't sexy, uh, but it was, a, it was profitable. And I had two people to work for me and their job was in my territory to set appointments for me. And they were out in on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast and they were pretty good and they could set appointments all day long. And I had a really big territory. So it took about four hours to get from one side of my territory to the other. And I was a field sales rep at the time. And I, I figured out really, really quickly that I didn't want them setting appointments for me. Right. Because they got paid to set appointments. Right. And and I got paid to close business. So what I began doing and I was and I was a I'm a good prospector. So I've I mean, I, and I enjoy the game of, of calling people and getting appointments. But exactly what you found, if I set the appointment and I went in, I was going to close the deal. Yep. If they set the appointment, I was probably going to be meeting with someone who was maybe interested, but really got kind of got talked into the meeting. And there wasn't a lot of qualification that was done. So when I got there, there wasn't there wasn't a certainty that that deal was going to either get disqualified up front or move into the pipeline. It was t typically a waste of my time. So what I did with them is I got them into my C my CRM and I said, here are all the things that I need you to qualify. So if you qualify these things for me, I'll call them and set the appointment. And that way I'll put it on my calendar on my terms. And then mm -hmm. I'll give you the appointment. I'll, I'll yep. tell your boss you set the appointment. Right. I made that deal. And and. I hit my numbers well, two years in a row as the number one salesperson in the company and set the company's all time sales record over, you know, over 50 years. And it was these having those two people that were that were basically mining my database uh, and yeah. getting in and getting all the qualification pieces set set up so that I could go in and push a button and build a list and then call people who were ready to buy or moving into the buying window. 
and I found that to be very helpful. I know that doesn't work everywhere, but I but I love what you said. If you you know the the, the account executive when when they have to go out and find it, they own it at a much different level than if someone gives it to them. And I think part of that accountability is saying to people, you never get a break. Like you don't get to be, I'm now I'm promoted to, I see it all the time on LinkedIn. I just got promoted to, to, you know, to account executive. I don't have to prospect anymore. You know, now I'm, now I'm different. Now I don't have to do that work where I think prospecting is the noble work of selling, right? That's the, that's the hardest part. And I, I tell account executives all the time, they say, well, I don't prospect. I go, listen, if I can't trust you to ask someone for time, how in the world can I trust you to ask for money? Yep. So true. Yeah, it's, it's a, I do, um, I do believe in the BDR model, but I comp them a little differently than some others. So I don't just comp them on a set appointment. Um, that's about 30% of their compensation. 70% is the quality of that. So if that doesn't go into the pipeline, and again, their criteria for the AE, so you know, the AE gets to ultimately determine that. But I, um, you know, make sure that I vet that out and that I'm, you know, inspecting what I expect. But about 70% of their comp is tied to the quality of that appointment, meaning it, meaning the AE agreed it was a qualified appointment. And I don't comp them at all on whether or not the AE closes that or not. That's not, that's, that's, I'm holding the wrong people accountable, right? Like, yeah. you know, BDRs are like, are you going to give me 1% of the deal? I'm like, no, because you didn't do anything. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, again, like you can't control that. I believe on paying people on what they can control which goes back to, like you said, we're paying, you know, I, I wrote a blog post a while ago about, are you getting your money's worth out of the base salary you're paying your reps? Because we're paying them a base salary to do certain things, which includes prospecting. It includes CRM hygiene. It includes keeping your manager up to date. You know, I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities that go with six figure base salaries or, or ones near that. And I think sometimes, again, like you said, AEs get this entitlement, um, you know, philosophy going on. And I, and I say, listen, if you want to go hundred percent commission, I'll pay you 30%, no problem. But yep. I don't know that you really want to do that. I, you know, what's funny is that I use exactly the same model and I have t people on my team who have opted for 30% on straight. And they, and I'm fine with that if they really yeah. want to do that. They, 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 they crush it. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're yeah. my best people, but, uh, but most people don't want to do that. Right. Let's, let's, Let's shift gears into creating a culture of accountability. And I, and I, I love that we're putting culture and accountability in the same place. Mm -hmm. So we can spend the rest of our time together, maybe getting you to walk leaders through, whether you're in a SaaS company or you're, in, you're selling widgets someplace, uh, or you're an entrepreneur with a small business or a big business, sales manager, what have you. Accountability matters. Uh, quick story, and then I'm going to give you the floor. Okay. A few years ago, I went to do a consulting gig. The I was giving a speech up at one of the Ivy League colleges, and I met the senior VP of HR for this company that was funded with millions and millions of dollars. It was, I, I think that they had gotten uh, maybe seven hundred and fifty million dollars in VC funding, and and he said we need some help. We need some help with training our sales team. So I got there and I got on the very first call and the, 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 the current leader of the sales team was sitting in a room and had a group of people that were around him. And this was up in New York City, the, the salespeople that were there. And there were salespeople in different places in the country and was giving a meeting. And I was and I just was observing. I was sitting in the corner. What I typically do is I just grab a cup of coffee in a Wall Street Journal and I just sit around and watch people. And. I, I, as I was watching the meeting, he's doing the meeting. He's talking into the conference line. The the salespeople that are sitting around them are all on their laptops, typing away. I don't watching cat videos. Who knows what in the world they were doing? And the people that we he was interacting with, he would ask him a question, really wouldn't give him an answer. And as I got into the culture, I remember walking into the CEO's office and saying, I, and I use these words. I said, "This is Lord of the Flies. I, I'm. It's appalling." Like, I mean, you guys are running some sort of a, like a drama filled soap opera and you've got you've got you want to grow fast and your investors are expecting you to grow fast. One of those really hot, you know, sectors that they, they have a tendency to flash up and flash down really quickly. And and, you know, I'm sort of, a you know, an old school sales leader like this is, you know, our job is to close business. That's what our job is. This is you know, this is a survival of the fittest 
world where you've got to be smart. You've got to go out and, and, you know, and kill stuff. And we pay you a lot of money to do that. But we're also professionals. We're dealing with other businesses. So I jumped in the middle of it and turned the place up down, upside down. They gave me, they basically said, you have carte blanche to fix anything. They have plenty of money, threw it at me. And I ended up having to walk at least half of the sales team out. And I've done that a couple of times. I did that in Wichita, Kansas once. I was same thing. It was a it was a cell inside sales floor. And I'm getting there and I'm watching this place and I'm like, this is a disaster. And I remember the HR people watching me in horror when I got everybody in the room and I fired half the people and said, get out, take your stuff, don't come back. And because there was no accountability, there was no leadership. And the people that had put their money in these companies was expecting more than this. And, and it was just bad. Like it was bad stuff. And, and so, and those are bigger organizations that had a lot of money to build that out. I also know that as an entrepreneur, cause I remember when it was just me and my flip-flops right on the phone, banging the phone out, calling people to get people to do business with me. I think some of the, you know, we have some accountability issues as we grow as entrepreneurs and grow as businesses. Even my business now has some of those issues because we, the way we grew up was bad. In some cases, like the ones I was telling you about, zero yep. leadership and just too much money and allowing yep. people to run wild. And in other cases, you've just got the founder who is just trying to put everything together. And there's this place where there's this inflection point that if you don't create some accountability, it's a disaster. And I'm curious from your standpoint, your expertise, like how, how do you, like, what would be your framework for a business, no matter where they fit on that spectrum? Yep. Maybe they're just, like you said, broken or they're just trying to grow. What's the framework that you advise people like me or sales leaders or executives to put into place to begin to shift into an accountability culture? So very first and foremost, it starts with setting expectations and putting those in writing. So, you know, what, you know, and in, in now during the middle of, of everything that's going on, it's more important than ever. There's more uncertainty than ever before which means sales reps need accountability more than ever before. They need to truly understand what will cause me to lose my job because everybody's worried about that, right? So they have to understand what the, you know, what the circumstances around that are. So, you know, I say you've got to sit down and honestly, um, Jeff, I think accountability, so creating accountability's culture starts during the interview process. And we can talk about that in a little bit in some of the interview questions that I ask candidates. But during the interview process, I'm already starting to set expectations. A, just by the behavioral-based interview questions that I'm asking to ensure that people will walk their talk, you know, people will fall on the sword when they need to, but really like everything from activity, quota, work, so right now, I went to, back to all of my um, clients and former clients and wrote uh, up a little how-to menu during COVID and said, you have to create accountability around the work schedule because the work schedule is not, not eight to five anymore. The work schedule is whatever they can, however they can do it, but you need to, as the leader, you have to understand what you can expect from them from even a work schedule standpoint. Um, I think the other thing that, that people sometimes forget is expectations are a two-way street. So I, as the leader, just can't sit down with you and say, you know, here are my expectations and let's negotiate, you know, the, the what and put those in writing. I also need to say, and by the way, here's what you can expect from me. I always ask questions. This is a question I ask new reps all the time. When I sit down and do this expectations meeting at the very end, after I've said what I'm, what they can expect from me and they said what I can expect from them, I say, what do you want me to do if you don't hold enough, uh, hold up your end of the bargain? That's good. So I basically let them set their own consequences, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And so why would I wait until, until it's gone south on me to then go back to fix it in a way that may not work for the rep. You know, and you hear everything from, I need a gentle reminder to, I need you to take me out to lunch. Clearly something's going on and I need, you know, I need some one-on-one -on -one attention. I mean, I hear a lot of different things to that question, but I write that down on the document too. And so it's so much easier for me to go to a rep who's not, you know, holding up their end of the bargain or doing what, you know, walking their talk and say, hey, listen, we had this, we had this conversation and this is what we discussed and this is what we agreed to. And this is what you told me you wanted me to do if you weren't being, if you were holding yourself accountable. And I think we're at that place. So, so now I have that conversation. How hard are those conversations? And by the way, getting everything down on paper for early stage founders. Um, it really isn't that hard. I mean, really? it, 
It really isn't. Well, having, um, I want that conversation to happen a couple of different ways. So I want that conversation to happen in the first one or two weeks of onboarding. Um, and so I, I actually went, you know, I spend a lot of time helping my founders onboard new reps and I build that in. So I build an hour by hour, day by day, formal onboarding plan for the first two weeks for my founders. And in there is a two hour expectations conversation. And I sit in on that sometimes. And if, the, if I've worked with the founder before, they can run through that themselves. Um, but I, you know, I want them to understand not only expectations, but communication. How does the employee want to be communicated with? Again, we're dealing with a lot of, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z, right? So they're like, Slack is great. And they're not offended by Slack, you know, like, but having conversations over Slack. And I always say to people, I say, listen, when my doors open, my doors open and you're welcome to come in. But I run a very tight schedule. I mean, like you, I'm working multiple and I'm a solopreneur, right? So I'm working three to five clients at any given time. I have color code my calendar, but when I'm on a fraction, when I'm in a fractional client situation, I really am available. But I say to them, if it's a 911, you better text me. If it's not, you can email me. You know, if you need an answer in 24 hours, you email me. If this is a 911, you better text me. But those are all, those are expectation conversations too that people just don't think about. And then really what needs to happen is I say quarterly expectation meetings, right? Because in my world, the business is shifting so quickly you can't just set expectations in week two and expect them to not change by month nine. So we need to sit down quarterly as a team. What are the expectations of the team as well as individual expectations? And once you, here's what I say to people, I'm here, I'm going to make your life so much easier. You know, if, if, if I'm not playing sales leader, which I do from time to time, but let's say the founder's playing sales leader, I'm going to say to them, this is going to make your life so much easier. We're going to put all this in writing. We're going to have these conversations up front so that you don't have to have a very awkward conversation in the middle of a crisis. That makes sense. I like that. I like that. I think, uh, I think that the, the expectation meeting that matters. And, you know, if you, and if you look back on, I, I, cause I'm an entrepreneur, so I just look back on, you know, in our, in the early stages of our company, the biggest mistakes that we made was we didn't have those conversations. So right. when there was a crisis or when things went wrong, it was pretty easy for the employee to look at me and go, well, you didn't tell me what to do. And, you know, th there is a truth in the fact that if people think they're doing the right thing, that's right. Why would it ever occur to them to do anything else? Yeah. And you got to go in with that attitude, right? Like I I'm, I'm a kind of spiritual in nature in that way. I assume everyone is doing the best they can, but sometimes the best they can is only because I failed them as the leader. Smart. So, you know, so accountability like I said, I'm really, I'm really executive coaching, right? I am teaching them how to do this because, you know, because that, again, my, my clients cannot afford to make hiring mistakes. They can't afford to make, um, to let people go because they didn't know they were supposed to sit down and have these conversations. And now things have gotten so left of center that there's no coming back to center. Um, I'll tell you, I, I became passionate about accountability culture, and I have, a, I have a story similar to yours, except I was on the inside instead of the outside looking in. But I woke up one day, and the owner and I were having our one-on-one -on -one meeting, and we had let some of the inmates run the asylum, and it had gotten really bad. And they were they were producing so much that we felt like we were being held hostage. Mm -hmm. And and God bless this this owner who was not VC backed and was bootstrapping. But he said, like, well, let's go home and sleep on it. And we did. And we came back the next day. And he said, I don't think we have any choice but to terminate the three of the seven. And I was horrified. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. Um, and he worked me through it that day. And we didn't sleep that night. And then we came back the next day. And I terminated my top three sales reps all before 930. And I was, I'll be, I'll be honest, looking back on it now, Jeb, I'm grateful that he didn't fire me and keep them because this was my, this was my problem. Yep. And I, we let, you know, I let the fact that I needed to hit a bonus and I had to hit my quota as the sales leader. I let that get in the way of keeping control of the team. And so I swore from that day forward, I would never let that happen again. But I think that's a, I think that's a, I don't, again, I don't know this to be true. You work with more startups than I do, but I think that's common in small businesses 
it, that you have producers or rainmakers that, and, and I like the way that you said this, because we say this all the time, that hold you hostage. Yep. And in my company, I've been, you know, I at least have the feeling that I've been held hostage several times along the way where I've got, you know, somebody producing. I know that I know that they they're failing me. And in, in fact, I have one of my wife and I were talking about that. My wife's our CFO. And one of our greatest regrets is we had a top producer who completely disrespected us one day and everything inside of me, like all of, I grew up in the fortune 500 world. So I grew up, you know, a VP of sales with a thousand people on my sales team. Wow, yeah. you know, the, the moment that you did that would have been the, you, you know, the security guard would have come and got you at your right. house and walked you out the door. Right. It was a small business. I'm like, you know, I'm looking at, I'm the founder and, and, and we're trying to grow and we, you know, we want to move fast. And, you know, this is, you know, six years ago. And, and I, you know, and I, I've got, I'm looking at, I work, I'm working 24 hours a day. I still do today. Right. And I'm thinking if I lose this person, I'm going to be working even more and we want to do this. And I was bargaining with myself right. for all of the reasons that you said, I mean, even as, but as an entrepreneur, I'm bargaining myself that I'll just let this pass. And it ended up being the greatest mistake that I've made in our business completely to allow that person to continue on, you know, multiple years. And, and I've, and I, I learned from it. I learned not to do that again. Now, when my spidey sense goes off and I know from a, you know, like you said something, you know, you talked about spirit, spirituality, but when my, when my moral compass says this is wrong, then I don't, I don't bargain with myself anymore. I call it and cut it because what I learned over time was it, I, ne I never had this problem in big companies, but I learned over time in a small company that all things will pass. That's right. It'll it'll fix it. It doesn't feel like it in the moment that you can fix yourself because you're right. just so overwhelmed with yes. everything else that you have to do. And and I imagine in your case, like you said, you've got some founders that are pretty good at coding and now they're running a business. They don't right. really even understand sales. So you've got people that can can in some ways snow them because right. it's something that they don't get. But I'm but I, I, I meet companies all the time. And, and by the way, this is the crazy thing. It's so much easier for me as a consultant to walk in yep. and point that out to the founder than it is for me to see it on, you know, in my own business. Yeah. Sometimes it's really hard to go, God, Lee, why, why are you letting that person do this to you? And and I think part of a business growing has been for us as a company has been we need to de-risk that any one person can hold us hostage, including, by the way, me. And right. a great deal of work on our business as a strat from a strategy and accountability standpoint is is getting the business set on solid ground so that if I'm not here for any reason, the business is sustainable and it keeps going because, you know, I'm, you know, as the key person in the organization and the face of the business, like you lose me, you got a problem and I shouldn't be able to hold the business hostage either. It should right. be able to live and breathe without any single human being. Yeah, I mean, this is what I call addition by subtraction. Um, and I tell founders, and here's the deal, like, because you and I come in as experts, right? Because we've been there, because I've had to fire three people before 930, there isn't anything that I see that I haven't already done or seen. So, you know, they have to trust that. I say to them, I promise I can find you someone better. Like, I promise you that they're out there. You know, and I, I do a lot of hiring help for my clients because they've never hired sales reps before. So I call it project managing the hiring process, but I do a lot of that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have a, I had a client recently who, and again, I think one of the harder things, Jed, for people who are the hiring manager, whether that be the founder or whether that be HR, whether that be the, you know, the sale, the VP of sales, you might've met, you might've mishired. Right. And, and I think owning again, that's, that's accountability on yourself, right? That's falling on the sword. That's falling fast on the sword and saying, you know, Hey, listen, I made a bad hire. And so I've got to fix my own problem here. And again, it's not the employee's fault, right? Bad hires, are, are definitely, I always take full responsibility for bad hires because I should know better, but I don't, you know, I no longer like you, I, I, it's very clear when I come in from the outside, I no longer fall, you know, I don't, I'm not falling in love with people. You know, I don't have a personal relationship with people. I wasn't there through the, you know, the past baggage. So I have a very, you know, third party clear glasses view of things, but we had a bad, hire. we had a, we had a mishire that happened. And I had consulted with the founder and said, this person is not qualified for this job. You're going to set them up to fail. And it's never going to be their fault. And I knew it wouldn't. And now seven months later, after two of the four sales reps quit, you know, now we've got ourselves a problem. And now we have to make a decision that we should have made, A, if we were disciplined during the hiring process, we would have made then. 
But the other thing that people don't realize is that whole, like the morale problem that it causes. And again, when, when, when a rep walks into my office and this happens, okay, you know, this has happened occasionally over 20 years, a rep, I, I terminate a rep for accountability issues or non-performance or whatever, you, whatever it would be. And then, and another rep walks in my office and closes the door and says, we weren't sure how long it was going to take you. It's embarrassing. Wow. It's embarrassing when the entire team, and again, we're the man, like I always say, the managers always are the last to know, right? Because we're not living amongst the gossip and we're not going out for beer afterwards with the employees. But I've had that happen to me two or three times over 20 years. And it is embarrassing and humiliating that your team was waiting patiently for you to get rid of the bad apple so that we could change the culture and the environment on the sales floor. I think that though is one of the keys to creating a sales accountability culture is that you've got to recognize that the very best of the best salespeople, they are pulled backwards and held down by people who aren't accountable and they are lifted up when they're surrounded by people who are accountable, accountable to the mission, accountable to the numbers yep. and accountable to integrity as well. So uh, having a, a, a work environment where it's, it's, you know, it's, it's safe to, to, to operate. And like, I'm, I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not talking about having a work environment that's kumbaya. Cause I just, you know, I think sales in and of itself is going to be a competitive environment where everybody right. is, you know, working to get to the top of the leaderboard, yep. but it's not one where there's, you know, there's backbiting and, and, you know, people doing deals behind your back. And I've had that happen in my own business where I've had, you know, and I, and it and people didn't tell me, so I you know I found out later on. But you know, I've had a, a sales rep who was making side deals with other people, you know, mm-hmm. and you know for help on a deal or a lead or what have you, and it it pulls the entire organization down. It, even if that even if that person, by the way, is your top salesperson, it pulls okay. everybody down around them. So I think that's a I think that's a, a you know just a, a key part of of building that accountability. But I also think from a leadership standpoint, you said something important. And I want to go back to this because one of my early leaders and mentors, uh, Mary Gardner, who in my early twenties taught me how to be a sales leader. One of the things that she said to me, that's always stuck. She said, if you have to fire somebody, the first thing you do is go into the restroom and look in the mirror and you look yourself in the eye and you say, this is my fault. Yep. It is my fault that I have to fire this person. I own this. I'm accountable for this. Then you go fire them. And, you know, it sounds kind of weird on the outside, but it was a really important lesson because it made you as a leader, you know, be introspective and and look at what did I do to create this? And I'll have leaders even say to me, well, I didn't hire that person. And I go, well, that's, that's not, you don't, you don't get to, you don't get a pass for that. that, That's, that doesn't matter. You're firing this person. And it's your fault. It's your fault because you couldn't coach them. It's your fault because you couldn't make them better. But it's usually your fault because you hired them in the first place, and and you did it too quick. You you know you didn't ask the right questions. It was it was that. And and I think that as leaders, if we begin with that level of accountability, we're accountable to ourselves. Then it's easier for us to with integrity and and with the moral high ground to then lead from that place where where we're saying this is a place where we're all going to be accountable for the things that we've promised the organization. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, uh, when I get some spare time, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to call it hashtag own your own shit. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, <laughs> that's, that's very good. Very good. Well, you know, it is, it is about ownership. It is absolutely. That's the, that's the key. If everybody owns it, we're good. And we're having a, you know, we're having a pretty heated conversation in our, in our company right now. We had one yesterday. I had a really bad day yesterday. My, my stomach hurt when I, when I finally got home at 1030 around, around ownership and caring. And one of my top people got mad at me yesterday because I said, I said, you just didn't care. And it was a, it was an issue that impacted one of our customers and that customer would have never known if, if my, if my rep had taken five seconds and just gone in and looked at the dashboard prior to the customer looking at the dashboard, Mm -hmm. but they left it to chance. Yep. And, and, and the, you know, there were, there were, they were basically, you know, got, got into an argument with me and like, how dare you tell me that I don't care? I care, I care, I care, I care, I care. And I said, that's what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. 
you you did not care whether this customer had a great experience or a bad experience. You may have said that you cared, but you didn't actually do it. Because your actions didn't reflect that. Exactly. And right. That's what people gonna... understand. Like, if you say you care, then I, this is this walk your talk thing. I can't, I get so, I get so irritated because I was like, I have another friend that calls it their audio and video matching. And I'm like, your audio sounds awesome. Your video ain't on. Yep. That's exactly what I loved. Godly, Christy. I'm I got, Jeff, I got Christy as, so I'm just going to email you a whole list. I'm just, I'm, that's, a, that's fantastic. I'd love that. But you're, but you're exactly right. And, and, but then as we move through the organization, you know, as this conversation, and this is going to light you up, I said, and I looked at you last night and I said, you're going to go check this. And you said, yes. And I said, repeat mm-hmm. after me, just to make sure we're on the same page. What exactly are you going to do? I'm going to go in. I'm going to quality check it before we send it to the customer. And I said, well, you didn't do that. And he goes, I made a mistake. No, I said, you made a choice. A mistake is right. if, you, if, right. you, if you mess something up and you didn't mean to mess it up, but you made a choice right. to go backward on your commitment. And, right. and, that's uh, an integri- and that's an integrity issue. That's hashtag own your own shit. Yes. That's like exactly be honest right. about the fact that you made it. Yeah, that's right. And I, yeah, I've got a 21 year old and I have been teaching him since he was old enough to understand. I say, every decision you make has a consequence. Be careful. That's exactly right. So I could talk to you forever. This, is, this has been really good. Awesome. And, uh, and I, I think that if you're a sales leader and you've been listening to this, it's, we've been kind of all over the place, but there are a lot of lessons in here, especially for, for sales leaders on how you create accountability. But essentially, it begins with you as the leader, making sure that you understand what accountability means. And I'll and I'll leave you with one thing, Christy, because I, I want to get your I want to get one one more little gem out of you. But I was working with this this leader who wasn't doing very well. And it's a client that I've had for a long, long time. And the director said, can you spend some time with this leader and help them? So I'm having a conversation with him and he's talking to me all over the place. And like you said, the audio and the video weren't matching for me. And the way I say it is I was born at night, but not last night. So, you know, I've been here and done this. So be careful. So I I finally, I stopped and said, where's your ranking report? And he goes, we mean ranking report. I said, where's your ranking report? Like, how do I know what salespeople are on top? And he said, well, I don't like to put that up because I don't want to make people feel bad. So this is a 27 year old leader a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) kind of high millennial. Right. and I'm like, what do you mean you don't make it feel? He said, well, I don't want people in the bottom to feel like, you know, they're they're getting left out. I said, well, this is this is interesting because your team is failing and you're failing and you're in you're in pretty big trouble. But we can fix this. I said, can can you get me a ranking report? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, do it and print it out. So he does. And I I said, what I want you to do is print it out, rank it out, and I want you to just put a green highlighter on the top three people on your team. And then I want you to tape it on the outside of your office. This office is glass. So it's yeah. a cubicle kind of base thing, but the whole office is glass. I said, paste it there and let's just watch. And I'm telling you in like two seconds, somebody came by and looked at it. And then a few minutes later, somebody else came by. And then about five minutes later, there's six salespeople sitting around the ranking report. And then the, the, the second place salesperson walks into his office and says, this number is not right. This number is not right. You don't have my numbers right. I should be number one. And, and I looked at him and said, are you, are you tracking? Right. And he went, and, and, and to his credit, he went, yeah. And it was just that little bit of right. accountability, like let people see the numbers. I, transparency. You know, yeah. I mean, we didn't get a chance to go there, but transparency is, you know, you have to be transparent. So trans accountability also requires transparency. Yeah, and 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 you can't be ambiguous, right? It's got to be transparent and it's got to be exact, right? Because ambiguity leads to mediocrity on your sales team. So if you don't have transparency and you and you're not like giving people the whole story, they're not there. And by the way, salespeople are competitive; they right. want to know where they where they sit. And I've and and I think that this 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 idea of transparency, I think, is a big deal because one of the greatest leaders I ever worked for, a guy named Chris Dodds, is my senior vice president came into, we were in a company that, that really wasn't transparent. So we basically, if you weren't at the top levels of the company, you didn't know the numbers. And he took a, a region that was failing, brought me in with him, and he immediately opened up all of the reports 
So everything, everybody could see everything, every location you could see everything. He didn't do a big fanfare around it. He just posted it on boards. And suddenly the entire culture changed. Mm. Like all of a sudden, everybody started getting focused on the numbers. Everybody understood where we were. He would bring people into conference calls from the janitor all the way to the top. Wow. And just created this entire space where everybody knew where we stood all the time. And it wasn't like all of the information was held with one group of people. And we did the same thing in our company. We have a, a company scorecard that goes out every single month to every employee in our company, everybody. And, uh, and it's, it's scary to do that because there's right. some numbers and they were like, well, should we be you know, sharing these numbers? But it's it really what it is. because here's this, this is where we are. So, you know, whether we made money, didn't make money, you know what we got, you know, what's in, you know, all the, even receivables, everything is there. So I think that, that, I think that, like you said, the, it's a, the accountability comes from transparency. It comes from being clear about what you expect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, um, it's the the cultural thing happens over time. It's not something that like you don't like you said the video and the audio like you can't go. We have an accountability culture and have one. It doesn't work that right. way. It doesn't work that way. So I, before we leave, a couple of things. I want to give you a final word to give the you know the the listeners some last advice on what you believe steps they can take right now immediately to begin this process, the journey of creating a sales accountability culture, and then how people can find you. Sure. Um, you know what, we're, we're about to step into 2021, right? So there's no better time. If you've never done this before, if you've never sat down, if you've never put it on paper, let 2021 be, be your excuse, right? As you're building out quotas and everything else, this has to be a part of it. It's, it's much bigger than just handing out a quota number and saying, here's your 2021 number. Um, it really is sitting down. And like I said, don't forget that it's a two-way street. I can't set expectations for my sales reps, but not be willing to be held accountable myself. So here's what you can, you know, here's what you can expect from me. Now, what else do you need that I didn't mention? Or what else are you expecting from me? So these, I mean, these sound like complicated conversations. Once you get a couple of these under your belt, they're not. And I promise you that A, it'll make your life as the sales leader so much easier. It will add a level of respect within your organization and the team. Um, not every department, by the way, has an accountability culture. So I, I say to the sales leaders, we will, we'll lead the way for the company. We'll sell, go ahead and set the example. Everybody's looking to us anyway for a lot of reasons. So let, you know, let us be the one that sets and creates an accountability culture. So it, it's setting that expectations and then it, there have to be consequences, right? So Jeb, you and I have talked a lot about termination today and, and, but it doesn't have to get to that place, right? There have to be milestone consequences along the way. How are we gonna handle that? Asking that employee, what do you want me to do if your video's off? Your audio sounds great, video ain't happening. So what do you want me to do? Let them set their own consequences. You have to negotiate that and agree to that, but those things are all doable. And then um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you in a minute how you can, how you can find me, but I'm gonna give your um, listeners some accountability behavioral-based interview questions. So yes, you inherit teams all the time. Jeb, you and I've walked in, how many teams have we walked into that we did not build from scratch? The only time I've ever done this in my entire life was the opportunity that Gainsight gave me to build the very first SDR team they ever had. Oh, I owned every one of those reps from day one, but that is not the normal situation. Um, but as the new leader who comes into an existing team, you have to sit back within the first two weeks of you starting, you have to sit down and have those expectation conversations. You know, you have to start all over again, no matter whether the last leader did it or not, this is now your team and it needs to be run by you and they need to understand what they can expect from you. So, um, Jeb, your listeners can find me. I'm on LinkedIn. So Christy, K-R-I-S-T-I-E Jones. My company is Sales Acceleration Group. So salesaccelerationgroup.com front slash sales gravy. I'm going to put a PowerPoint up there on the how-to, a step-by-step how-to on uh, creating an accountability sales culture, as well as some interview questions that I think will be helpful for them. Um, accountability is a competency and it needs to be treated as such and you need to interview for it. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing that for our listeners. Really appreciate it. It's been fun spending time with you, Christy. And give us that, that URL one more time so people can go get the resource. Sure. Sales Acceleration Group, front slash sales gravy for your special piece. And I've got a lot of blog posts out there, Jeb, um, on my website about around accountability, around hiring, um, around the consequences and those type of things. So 
there's there's lots of great information on my website, but particularly I want to make sure that that your listeners really from the very first uh, step, which is interviewing all the way through, um, you know, longtime reps, how we're going to do this and make your life easier. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Sales Gravy podcast. Well, I hope this episode inspired you to take a new look at your organization and start thinking about how you can build a culture of sales accountability. And if you're an individual, maybe it's an opportunity to look at your own individual behaviors and figure out how you can add a little bit more accountability to your sales day. In the meantime, I hope you'll take an opportunity to send me a text message and tell me what you thought about the episode and ask any questions or give me some ideas. My phone number is 1-706-397-4599. That's 1-706-397-4599. 